Child of God, yes, I am. I like it. I like it. I'll stay right there. <laughs> oh, so thank you, Galen, for handling things while I was off for a week and, uh, and uh, enjoyed listening to you and for my staff for all that they did while we were away for a week. And um, I have a little, um, I remember a story when I, as I think about that, of a little girl who was in the, uh, in the congregation and she really didn't like to sit through the pastor's sermon, so she was kind of fidgeting around. Her mother was sitting next to her and he says, honey, she says, why don't you just, why don't you just uh, take like the word and and write little sticks down how many times the pastor says and, the word and. And so she started to do that, and she started marking it all down and, 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 and doing all that. And, and then she started moaning and moving around again and getting all upset. And the mother said, well, honey, she says, what's the matter? She says, well, I'm tired of this. I don't want. She says, well, why don't you pick a word? She says, okay. So the mother said, well, what, what word did you pick? She said, amen. <laughs> now, I know you people like that. That's why, that's, why I said, that's why I said that. Amen. It's time to go home. You know, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're at. Love it. I love it. Um, Wednesday night, we're in, we're, we're in Isaiah 52. This Wednesday, we're talking about the servant songs. And so we're going to kind of work on that just a little bit more this Wednesday night, Isaiah 52. Uh, you need to be in prayer. Continue to pray for our country. A lot of stuff going on. A lot of angst out there uh, in our country. And, uh, and real quick, I'll uh, update you on Mary because I don't usually do this, but I think it was two years ago that I put her in the hospital, uh, end of April, two years ago. So we've been trying to get her into a clinic at the university for this um, uh, treatment. And, uh, and they called and said no. So we're back to square one with everything, so, but pray for that, you know, pray for that. Okay, Ephesians chapter one, I want to get down to verse 11, okay? Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Kind of goes along with what we just sang, right? In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Lord, add his blessing to the scriptures. You may be seated. Let's, let's say this together, okay? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you. I missed that last week. Yeah. I had said to you, well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the word. We're thankful for the scriptures, uh, for, the, for the depth of them, for the, the height of them, for the width, 
Um, it, and it speaks to all of us in our lives. And we would pray, Lord, that as we share this today with, with, from the scriptures, that it might be that which enlightens, uh, informs, uh, draws us closer to you, and um, that we might even, at the end, just see the glory of God and all that he's provided for us in Christ. And this is our heart and our prayer, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'd said to you when we started Ephesians, as we started this book, that Ephesians is about salvation, first of all, and secondly, it's about the church of Jesus Christ. And um, we get more directly into the church when we get to the second chapter. It does that a little bit more in chapter two. In these verses, we get an amazing picture about how we become Christians. How do we become Christians? And how do we live as a Christian? And then what does it mean to be a Christian? And that's where he is in this first chapter of Ephesians. If you think you're a Christian, this is one of the best ways to figure out whether you are. Um, if you say, I'm not a Christian, this passage shows you what that means, if you're not a Christian. So here we learn that being a Christian means three things. Truth, it means hope, and it means glory. Truth, hope, and glory. Look at verse 13, where we started. 13 gives a, a, a wonderful definition of how to become a Christian. And just very plain there, it says, so you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Becoming a Christian doesn't start by you doing something. It starts by hearing something. You hear something. Uh, you, you hear a word. You hear a message. We're told it's truth. It's the gospel. And that's where he goes with this. There's a museum that's now closed that was in a Victoria Museum in London. Uh, one of the first to explore this idea of postmodernism that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But it's important that we talk about this because there's so much in our culture today and deals with some of the things that I want to talk about today. But it's the passage of time that happens in, in, in 1970 to about 1990. And it has had a remarkable impact on our current culture and helps us understand some of the things that are happening in our current culture. Edward Dox, who is a prominent British uh, writer, wrote an article back uh, in the, I think in the, in the 90s, where he talked about, uh, he said, postmodernism is dead. That was the title of the article. Postmodernism is dead. And then in, about four or five years ago, another guy wrote an article that said, postmodernism is not dead. And he spent some time talking about that, and so I want to talk about that a little bit in terms of what I want to do with this passage of Scripture today. Truth is, cultural movements rarely die out. Whatever those cultural movements are, they rarely die out completely, and postmodernism is still alive in academia, it's still alive in theological circles today, and it, and it really has impacted uh, uh, our lives. Uh, at a fundamental level, postmodernism is still in almost all parts of schools and academia today. Uh, Docs continues to write in his article, he defines postmodernism, and he says this. He says, postmodernism is the idea of deprivileging any one meaning. 
Think about that. Deprivileging any one meaning. All discourses that go on, every, every one that disagree, all have equal meaning and, and are equally valid. Whatever anyone says. No matter what you claim, no matter what you say, it has equal validity as what anyone else would say. It's no better than anyone else's truth. And that what that leads to is no truth. There's no truth. There's no truth. And it affects us today. Everything is relative. Doesn't make any difference what you think. It's all relative. Philosopher Roger Scruton says, and this is interesting, he says, those who say there are no truths or all truth is relative are, are just simply asking you not to believe them. Because who cares what they say? Who cares what he says? They're just asking you not to believe them, right? So don't. Don't believe them. Without truth, everything descends into nothingness. Everything descends into nonsense. Here's an example of, of postmodernism uh, scholarship from Judith Butler. She wrote an article that was entitled Reflections on the Conversation of Our Time. And she wrote it was on capitalism, on social structures, and power. Now watch what she does in the deconstruction of language here. And I'm going to put it on the screen and we'll read it to you. The move from structuralist account in which capital is understood to structure social relations in a relatively non-homogenous ways is to view a hegemony in which power relations are subject to repetition, repetition convergence, and rearticulation brought the question of temporality into the structure of thinking and marked a shift from the form of Athusarian theory that takes structural totalities as theoretical objects to one in which the insights into the continual possibility of the structure inaugurated a renewed conception of hegemony as bound up with the contingent sites and strategies and the articulation of power. What? See, see, when I look at that, I, I, I look at it and I say, well, what? <laughs> what? I'm sorry, but what? What are you trying to say? What? What does any of that mean? Now, it does mean something. I mean, you have to take the whole thing apart, but it's unbelievable. It's just words that are unintelligible. Blah, 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 blah. And that's what's happening in our society. We're changing words. Words don't mean this anymore. They mean this. They mean that. Cha -cha 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 -cha. All this chatter that's going on. So it is fundamentally no different than me saying to you this morning, listen to me, Harvey Farby. <laughs> Harvey Farby, neaten bitten, Dieter Dieter. You know, munchkin, munchkin, uh, fusing, uh, it makes no difference. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. There's nothing behind those words. The emperor has no clothes. Right? We know the children's book. We ought to get back to some of these children's books. Modernism has spawned wokeism. 
in our society. It spawned us from what has been taught in the schools. So postmodern at its heart is a deconstruction of words, a deconstruction of knowledge, a deconstruction of history, tear it down, get rid of it, a deconstruction of education, and a deconstruction of religion. Get rid of it. It destroys the framework of truth upon, you have to build life upon truth. Truth. The result is that you go nowhere, you learn nothing. It's like someone sitting on their front porch wondering why their house doesn't automatically get magically built by the pile of dirt that's sitting in the front yard. There must be some grounding someplace. There must be a, a first principle to build upon. And Scripture says that principle is truth, ultimate truth. It's foundational to people's lives. That's what he's saying in verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. What is the word of truth? He continues in that, the gospel of your salvation. That's the word of truth, you know. Secondly, people are uh, embrace postmodernism as one of the things they thought it was so good is was it fighting oppression, fighting of the you know the oppression that's going on in our world. Now think about all this because this is very relevant today. Because he said, you know, once you challenge the dominant discourse, once you challenge the dominant discourse of society. And that's what it does. It challenges this, it challenges that, it challenges where you're male, whether you're female, all the dominant, challenge it all. It challenges the dominant discord. You're giving the subordinate voices a chance to speak because you're, you're challenging that. So all the other voices begin to speak. And from there, you can address injustices, which is a good, 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 good thing, but it didn't do that. It just didn't do that. Philosophers know this when they look at this. So postmodernism meant no truth. No truth. And people who say, I have the truth, they're oppressive. They're oppressing you. They're oppressing you. Uh, third thing he says is, in time, now watch this, because you can see this happening in society. You can have, see this worldwide, worldwide. The third thing he says, in time, because postmodernism attacks everything, and it does, everything. It destroys everything. The mood is confusion. 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 Uncertainty begins to grow and grow. And if we deprivilege all positions, there's no truth. The result is chaos. The result is chaos. Years ago, G.K. Chesterton, my favorite Catholic writer, said the problem with doubting everything and saying everything is relative is that it gets in the way when you want to denounce anything. Now look what he says here. I love this statement. Because all denunciation of, of things implies a moral doctrine. If you're going to denounce something, it has a moral doctrine behind it, you know, of some kind, that you have a moral high ground, that you can speak against something. That, that can't be because nothing is true, because you're saying some things to change things. You're speaking what you believe is truth. So then Chesterton says, and I love this, is 
there is a thought that stops thought. And that's the only thought that ought to be stopped. I like that. There is a thought that stops thought. That's the only thought that ought to be stopped. You can't stop thought and people thinking and challenging. Here's what's amazing. Doc says, as he continues in his article, and then I'm going to be done with him, we thought the idea that there's no truth would be liberating. Right? No truth. I'll live the way I want. I'll do what I want. It's liberating. It's not. It's not. In the end, it means you can't object to anything. You can't object to anything that's wrong. So it's over. No dialogue. No talking, no challenging anyone. Your truth is your truth, my truth. I'll do whatever I want to do. It destroys society. It destroys society. In our society, the idea that all truth is relative is now embedded in our society. Yet Scripture, Christianity, has always said you can't live without truth. You can't live without truth. The gospel, he says in verse 13, is truth. Is truth. And that's why there's the attack on the church today. Because we talk up here and we say, we have truth. No! (laughs) No, 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 no. You don't have any truth. And and the church just stands there with their truth. And here come the the slings. And that's what's happening in society in terms of the church. And you say, well, why why is it? Okay, get after the church. That's truth. You know, we have our say. Do you know what the word gospel means other than what you think it means? <laughs> it's an announcement, right? It's a proclamation. The gospel is good news. It's an announcement of something. It's, it's something happens. Something happened in history. That's the gospel. Something's going on here. It's an announcement that something happened. The Bible has a lot to say about how you ought to live your life. But that's based on what the Bible says about something that happened. It's based that something in history happened. So because of that, this is how we live. You know, that's the gospel. Other religions start, but they'll, they'll say, here's how God wants you to live. If you live this way, you'll be safe. Christianity starts and says, here's what God has done in history to save you. Here's what God has done. The gospel's not good advice on what you should do. It's about what has been done in Christ. What's already been done in history. You see the difference? You see the difference? Let me give you an example. People who say, I I can't believe in Christianity because what the Bible says about sex and gender and, you know, it's regressive. That's regressive. I don't like that stuff. I don't like it. Okay. So let's ask a question to that. So it's regressive. Okay. If you think the Bible says about sex and gender is regressive, does that mean that Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead? Now we think, man, what are you, what are you talking about? And they say that. What are you talking about? That's not what I'm asking. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm not talking about Jesus. What are you talking about? They're not talking about Jesus, but they should. That's the point. That's the point. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, you don't have to believe anything that the Bible says. It's the point. 
Something happened in history. Do we understand that? The Bible talks about sex and gender, but if Jesus has risen from the dead, don't believe any of that. You don't have to believe nothing. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead. See, the Bible deals with what happened in history and then goes and said that because of that, here's how you should live. Here's how you should live. Have you checked out the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God? I mean, that's important. That's important. If you haven't looked at him, you haven't checked out Christianity. You haven't, you haven't really understand it. All right. It's not advice on what you should do. It means to, to hear, believe truth, to believe the truth and live the truth. And that truth is the gospel. It's the gospel. That's what makes you a Christian. You believe the gospel. It's not advice on what you should do. It means to hear and believe. All right, so we start with truth. The second thing that we see in the scripture, in verse 12 that we looked at, says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. We were the first to hope in Christ. So there's truth, now there's hope. There's hope. And then all of verse 14, if you drop down in your scriptures, you're looking at it, where it talks about our inheritance being guaranteed. That's hope. Our inheritance is great in Jesus. We know where we're going. We know what the Lord's done for us. We have, it's a guarantee. Christianity gives you hope. It gives you hope. The English word for hope, it's not, not like it is in, it never is, like it is in the Hebrew. We talk, we say we hope, we hope so, or we hope it's true, or it's not, we're not sure. But in the Bible, the word hope in Scripture is a life-shaped certainty. It's a hope. It's, it's certainty about your future and who you are as an individual. Human beings, we're hope-based creatures. We're hope-based creatures. How you live in the present is shaped by what you believe about the future. Really, how you live is shaped by what you believe. You can't avoid that. You can't avoid that. Let me give you an illustration. I've used it before. I've looked for other, others, but I can't find a good one. This is a good one, so I stay here, so you're going to hear it again. You put two people in the same room, and you ask them to do a task, right? The conditions are the same. It's hot. It's stuffy. It's lousy job. Don't like doing it. It's repetitious. People around you stink and smell, and they're yelling at you all day. You don't, you don't even like being there. Before you start, you whisper in the one guy's ear, you say, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to pay you 50 bucks. You go to the next person, you whisper at the end of the day, I'm going to give you a million dollars. I can guarantee you. (laughs) I can guarantee you. Though they're doing the same task, doing the same thing, same circumstances, They're processing things very differently, very differently. One person says, I don't need this, 50 bucks, done with it, forget it. The other guy, he's he's doing backflips. He's singing, he's happy, they're yelling, he doesn't care. Whatever you want to do, different futures determine how you live. And what you think about life, if they're, and they will be processed differently. Two people, one person says, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if there's a God. Um, I believe that when you die, you just rot. You just rot. 
The other person says, I'm a Christian. I believe when I die, I'm going to be with God forever. I'm going to be with the Lord forever. At the end of time, God's going to come to earth and everything's going to change and he's going to put away all evil and make things right. He's going to defeat all evil. Two absolutely different futures. And because we are hope-based creatures, all of us, those two different futures will affect how you live your life. They will affect how you live your life. Somerset Maugham, author of, of Human Bondage, an old book, a secular guy, but it really talked to his culture. Uh, in his autobiography, he said this, if you put aside the existence of God, if death ends all, there is neither good nor evil to fear, I must ask the question, what am I here for? What am I here for? Most people won't face that question. They just blither on. But the answer is, life has no meaning. That's You're not here for nothing. Life has no meaning. In his book, there's a character by the name of Philip Carey, and he's sitting on a park bench in London. And he's thinking to himself, and I'll give you the thought, I'm just quoting what he's saying in the book here. It seemed to Philip that the burden of responsibility was taken from him and for the first time in his life, he was totally free. If there's no meaning in life, a man, by living, serves no end. Life is insignificant and death without consequence. If we're here by accident, and afterwards there's neither good or bad, I can live any way I want. Who cares if I go down to Texas and shoot up a mall? Who cares? I'll do what I want if this is all there is. There's no consequence for anything. Most people will not think out the implications of that for their lives, that they'll live as if people have value. They don't, if that's true. You have no value, if that's true. They'll live as if life has meaning. It doesn't. I talked to, the, to my sixth grade class years ago. We were talking about some of these things to, to kids. And I was talking to them. Um, they'll act as if there's right or wrong. There isn't. It's a de deconstruction of society. It's a deconstruction of society. The fact that none of these things are true. We're not like that as Christians. We're not like that as Christians. We have hope in the future. We have hope in the future. And what is that hope? And that's the last thing, glory. Glory. We have the hope of glory in our lives. Truth, hope, glory. That's a Christian's life. That's who we are together. The word glory shows up a lot in Scripture, and it does, does so in Ephesians as well. It's, it's an unbelievably rich word. In verse 14, if you want to follow me here, here's what you're told. He says, if you're a Christian, this is true of you. If you're a Christian, this is what you have. First, you're God's possession. Well, I was just saying that. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Right? You're God's possession. This goes along with another statement that's used later in verse 18, 
you drop down to that in your scripture, it says we're God's inheritance. What is your inheritance? Well, it's, it's your net worth. What do, you, what do you got? I'm trying to get rid of all mine so my kids have nothing. <laughs> it's the bulk of your wealth, your inheritance. What you have. It's your treasure. It's your treasure. Imagine you have an apartment. You have all these possessions in your apartment. You have all these things, but there's one thing. There's one, whatever, whatever that is, it's worth 100 times more than anything else you have. And there's that one heirloom that you got or something that happened there. Uh, all of a sudden, there's a fire. You've got to get out. What's, what do you do? The first thing you do is you grab that thing and you grab your laptop and you're fine. You can rebuild your life. You got your information and you got your money. You know, you got your inherit. You got all that inheritance. You know, 95% of your net worth you've got, so you can start over. You can start over. The Bible has the audacity to say, now watch me here, listen to what I'm saying. The Bible has the audacity to say, God owns the stars, God owns the galaxies, the planets, but when he looks at you, Christians, when he looks at you, he says, that's my inheritance. That's what the scripture says. That's what we just read. That's my inheritance. He sees you as more valuable than everything else in the universe combined. Think about that. Think about that. This has been part of Christianity before society ever began to talk about self-esteem. You know, we all like to talk about self-esteem. Uh, we talk a lot about self-esteem today. I mean, you know, and, and one of the things I did, I went online real quick and I took a couple articles that had to deal with self-esteem and what we need to do to help our self-esteem. And here's the advice. Think of all your talents. Lose weight. Uh, get some goals. Reach those goals. Spend more time doing what you really enjoy doing. Get with people who appreciate you. Pat you on the back. But what is that to this? What Jesus says here. What is that to this? That's like a drop of water off the kitchen faucet compared to the ocean. Here's something better to say to yourself. I'm a child of God, right? I'm a child of God. I'm a special possession of God himself. The God of the universe loves me. He loves me. The great God of the universe is willing to use all of his omnipotent power to protect me, to watch over me. No matter what the cost, the Lord is my shepherd. 23rd Psalm, I shall not want. If you don't start talking that kind of stuff down into your life, talking that stuff down into the, the center of who you are, you're going to be like everybody else. Everybody else. Everybody else is looking for compliments. They're looking for clicks, strokes. I got who, who saw that? I got. We watch for all that stuff. Desperate for affirmation. I've got to have somebody affirm me. You know, aren't I? Aren't I a good preacher? Affirm me. Give it to me. No, I'm just kidding. Stop it. But I'm saying that's what we we, we just want that affirmation. We think we got to have that affirmation, longing for approval, to be noticed. To be noticed. 
They're always nervous, always upset about something. Understand this, Christians. Know the glory. Know the glory of what it means to be God's treasured possession. Who you are in Christ and what he's done for you. And if we go to bed at night tossing and turning because somebody insulted us, somebody said something about us, disagreed with us, somebody didn't notice us, we got disrespected, we got slighted. If you know this, how dare you nurse those things? Feel that hurt of pride and feel like I, I, I don't think I like myself and people don't appreciate me. My goodness, my goodness, you're God's possession, Christians. God's possessions. Secondly, notice down in verse 14. It says, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. What does that mean? Because in verse 7, we, we, it said we were already redeemed. It says, in Jesus, through his blood, you've already been redeemed, verse 7. Past tense. God's, God's already done that. So God is working. What is this? The answer is, the word redemption here means freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from the penalty of sin. We're forgiven, we're pardoned, but we're not free from the presence of sin, the power of sin in life. Someday we will be, but not now. Life is tough. Life is tough. What is the future redemption? I love this. I love getting to this. (laughs) You know, this, this is why I preach. I love getting to this. Paul talks about, in Romans 8, 18, he says, I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing. Right? 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 We know this. With the glory that's going to be revealed to us. They're not worth comparing. And then he drops down to verse 23 of the 8th chapter, says, we're waiting for the full adoption the redemption of our bodies. 24, for this hope we were saved. For this hope we were saved. Now, I'm going to be careful with how I say this. I'm I'm coming down to it here. On the last day of history, a glory will descend on all people who are in Christ. A glory so perfect and a glory that's so powerful so transforming that just the blast of it, the beauty of it, will cleanse the whole universe. It'll cleanse the whole universe. Book of Revelations, we read about this. Um, Everything wrong with you will be gone. And there's a lot of things wrong with you. Everything's going to Yeah, yeah. A lot of things wrong with us. It's all going to be gone. All going to be gone. Everything wrong with this world, gone. Gone. All death, all decay. What does it say? All suffering, all disease, all imperfection. That all that, that this is going to be the ultimate dawn. The ultimate springtime. John Newton said this. If an interesting statement. If you understand your future glory, 
It will make the best times leavable and the worst times bearable. What does that mean? I like it. (laughs) It's a good statement. If you know the future glory that's coming, understanding the scriptures, it means you won't have to take pictures. You know, people are always taking pictures of everything going on around you. You know, have you come back from vacation sometimes? Oh, gee, I wish I took a picture of that. Missed that. And I should have had my camera there. Or, I don't really have cameras anymore. Should have had my phone there. And uh, why didn't I take a picture of that? In light of this, that's what this is talking about. In light of this, as great as this world and the life of this world is, it's only the mudroom in the mansion of God. Why would you take a picture of a mudroom? God's got better things for us, greater things for us. You know that song we sang, glorious things of thee are spoken, right? Zion, city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, formed you for his own abode, on the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, you may smile at all your foes. Now here's where he talks in the third verse. Fading are the world's vain pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Truth. Truth. There's one more thing, and it's amazing. It's amazing here in this passage of Scripture. Not only are we God's possessions, waiting full redemption, it's coming. Future glory is coming. But then it says in verses 13 and 14, look what he says, You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You want to know if you're a Christian? You have the Holy Spirit in your life. A deposit guaranteeing that you're in him, guaranteeing your inheritance. Do you know what that means? Deposit means first installment. Just like you're buying a car, you made a deposit on it. You're you're not only told that you have a guarantee of future glory, we have some of it now. Now, you know. When you believe in Jesus, you believe the Holy Spirit comes into your life, the first installment of that very same glory is now in you. That glory is in you. And you have it in you. We underestimate the power of that. In our lives. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you, 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 you think things are going to be different, right? Things are going to be different. Got the Holy Spirit. I got God coming into my life. You, you're going to feel things that you never felt before. You'll have a whole new identity. Anybody who comes to Jesus Christ expects changes. You should expect changes to happen in your life. But you have no idea. You have no idea. When you invite God to come into your life, he's not just rearranging the furniture. He's knocking down walls. He's knocking down walls in your life. God is not just there to fine-tune your life. It's a new creation. You're a new creation in Christ. The thing that's coming into your life is not just the Holy Spirit in a general sense. It's future glory coming into your life. It's future glory coming into your life. A lot of us have things wrong with us, and you've, you've given up trying to change them. Don't. 
Don't give up trying to change your life. There's no fear. There's no bad habit. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you that Jesus can't change in your life. The presence of God is worth giving up anything to get. When you say, if I become a Christian, I'm afraid I might you know, hurt my career, or I might lose this, or I might lose that. You're like a child playing in a mud puddle. You know, some say, let's go down to the ocean. No, I'll stay here in the mud puddle. You know, I'll stay right here in the mud puddle. In the end, in the end, there's nothing much about the cross here in this passage, is there? There's nothing about the cross in this passage of Scripture, in this passage. How do you know that Jesus really does treasure you? That that's truth. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Where the Father and the Son were willing to lose each other. They lost each other. That's how you know you're treasured. Communion that we share. Communion. That's how we know we're treasured. How do you know you're going to get this future glory? Look at Jesus coming down, emptying himself. Look at Christ dying on the cross, and then you'll know that you're treasured. Look at the cross, and look what he's done on the cross, and then you know the glory is coming. In fact, some of it's in your life right now. Some of the glory is in your life right now, if you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. You'll be marked as God's possession. That's what it says. You have a mark, the mark of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're God's possession. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this uh, passage of Scripture, for the truth that's here for our lives. These basic things of truth and hope and glory, uh, the mark of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the coming of Jesus into the world, the gospel, that he came, he lived a life that we should have lived. He died a death that we should have died. And he was resurrected again. And he's coming to get us. That where he is, we may be. That there is that which is being prepared for his people, the children of God. We're thankful for that as a people. We're thankful for that as a church. We pray, Lord, that we take this gospel into our hearts, into our minds, into our living, and that we live with an uncommon hope in the future. In all the things that are happening today in society, and the, 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 the disillusionment, but we have a hope. We have a hope, and we have a future, and we have a glory that's yet to be. And we're thankful for that. And we're not like those who have no hope. We're not like those. We're a different people. We're God's people. And we're thankful. We ask, Lord, as we share together in, in time of communion, that it'll be that which nourishes our hearts and our bodies. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.